think for yourself, and when you see something that sounds too good to be true, check it out thoroughly because it might be good and true. Best ever listeners, do you want to make more money on your real estate projects? Well, I'm guessing that I'm hearing you say, oh yeah, baby. (laughs) Well, guess what, my friends? Today's best ever sponsor, Fund That Flip, is working with well, one of our previous best ever guests who has the most po- one of the most popular episodes, Jay Scott. If you aren't familiar with this episode, then go check that out, episode 217. If you are, because you're a loyal best ever listener, then you know that he knows how the heck to both analyze deals, especially flips, how to optimize the profits on those flips and how to look at the market. Because of that, Fund That Flip, today's sponsor, has worked with him and put together a guide that is the seven tips to increase your real estate profits in today's market. Go check that out, go get that guide. I've read through it myself. I've learned a lot of things from it, from how to analyze the market cycles, as well as how to optimize profits and not lose money or mitigate your risk for losing money on your deals go check it out fundthatflip.com forward slash best ever that's f-u-n-d-t-h-a-t-f-l-i-p.com forward slash best ever you're going to learn the tools to better understand your local market and position your business for success you're going to know how to analyze the real estate cycle and how to use short-term investing to capitalize on the market cycle and seven concrete, actionable tips to make more money on your deals. Fundthatflip.com forward slash best ever. Best ever listeners, hello, how you doing? Welcome to the best real estate investing advice ever show. I'm Joe Fairless. This is the world's longest running daily real estate podcast. And with us today, we have an investor with a lot of experience. He's the co-founder of Open Door Wealth Management, which is a technical training program in creative real estate financing. How you doing, Bill Gatton? I'm doing great, Joe. How about yourself? I'm doing really well. Nice to have you on the show. And a little bit about Bill. He's the creator of Equity Holding Trust Transfer. He is the author of Making It Big in Creative Real Estate and Keeping It, dot, 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 this time. I love that title. He's based in Las Vegas, Nevada, and you can say hi to him at his website, landtrust.net. With that being said, Bill, you want to give the best ever listeners a little bit more about your background and what you're focused on now? Sure, you bet, Joe. Basically, what we do in our company, we're a training company, but I'm also, we buy houses and sell houses and repair houses and so on. So our primary business is training real estate investors and real estate brokers and mortgage professionals in creative real estate. I hate to use the word creative because it's really overworked and overused, but maybe innovative real estate acquisition would be better. (laughs) A little longer, but uh, it sounds cocky, but that's probably a better statement. Essentially, where we've attained our fame is we've created a program using a um, an intervivos trust transfer mechanism 
that allows us to go out and take over pretty much any loan that's out there. There aren't any institutional mortgage loans that we can't take over without having to worry about the famous due-on-sale clause. So in virtually, as most of you know, in virtually um, every loan, there's a clause that says if you take our money and we loan money and we take your house as security for our loan, if you sell it to somebody else without getting our direct permission that we can foreclose on you within 60 days. Well, that's always been a kind of a drawback for anybody trying to do seller-assisted real estate. But it doesn't affect us because what we do is abide completely by federal regulations and banking regulations, which exclude certain types of trusts from the uh, due-on-sale provision. In other words, uh, it's um, Title 12 of the U.S. Code, paragraph 1701J3 talks about it, and it doesn't involve, the, the due-on-sale aspect of it doesn't involve transfers by trust, intervivalist trust. So that's one thing that we get around is that due-on-sale issue. So we can go in and legitimately take over pretty much anybody's mortgage loan without that provision getting in our way. But a, a more important one has come up fairly recently, and that's the Dodd-Frank Act. That's the uh, Wall Street Consumer Affairs uh, Anti-Seller Financing Act. Mm-hmm. And by virtue of the way we do things, we are not even compromising that. So a lot of real estate agents and mortgage brokers and investors are very interested in knowing that they can still continue doing what is tantamount to seller-assisted financing without violating any laws. And it's a pretty stringent law. It says that if you own a house, you can sell it and finance it once, but you can't do that with all of your income properties without having a real estate license and without conforming to HAPA and HOPA and all and Truth and Lending Act and all this kind of stuff. So we get around that. And we do it comfortably and legally. In other words, we can talk to any one of the hundreds of lenders that we've dealt with in the past and explain to them exactly what we're doing and uh, how we're doing it, and there's no conflict there. So that's kind of the, I guess that would be the icing on the cake. Yeah. Pretend I'm a lender and we just got on a call. How do you approach that conversation? What do you say? Well, if I'm talking to a lender, I'll just mention the only time I would ever talk to a lender is if they have a question about the sale of the property. They might perceive what we're doing as a sale. The lender would then contact their client and say, hey, you know, if you're selling the property, uh, understand that you're violating our due-on-sale clause, and we might foreclose on you. So the, the client then would normally call me and say, hey, what do I do? And at that point, I talked to the lender and explained to them that the property's not being sold, that what's happened is by placing this property into an intervivalist trust, that the ownership is actually converted from real estate ownership to ownership of personal estate. And transfer of personal estate doesn't violate the on-sale clause. It doesn't violate the uh, what is called the Garn St. Germain Act. And it doesn't violate the Dodd-Frank Act and so on. Now, the lender might say, well, we would consider that a sale. And I say, well, if you do, you need to go back and read <laughs> Title 12 of the U.S. Code, Paragraph 1701J3, which will tell you very clearly the transfer of property into an intervivalist trust wherein the borrower remains and is and remains a beneficiary and wherein the trust itself doesn't transfer 
occupancy rights. There's no do-on-sale clause involved. And I've had dozens and dozens of calls from lenders across the country for the last almost 30 years now. And uh, they don't go any further than that because what I tell them is absolutely true. It's uh, in the law, and there is no violation of the do-on-sale clause if you're putting a property into a specific type of inter vivos trust. It sounds like a high-level term, but it's not. Inter vivos just means a trust is created for your benefit while you're still alive. If it's created to take effect and give you benefit after you die, then it would be called a testamentary trust. So we don't deal in testamentary trust. Does that have any tax implications or disadvantages than compared to if you bought it outright? Well, sure. The whole point of it is that if you can't afford to buy it outright, then there are alternatives. In other words, in my case, if I had $400 million in the bank and the most perfect credit you've ever seen, I still would never acquire real estate any other way. Because when you place the property into this vehicle, this intervivals trust transfer mechanism, the property is protected then from liens and lawsuits and judgments and dour actions and marital disputes. It's uh, it's secret and silent. In other words, if, if you have a property in a trust and I want to sue you and I go look your name up in the county records, I'm not going to find it because the only name that would show up would be the trustee's name because the trustee for the trust is essentially the legal and equitable title holder. So I wouldn't be able to find you to sue you. And if I then find the trustee and call the trustee and try to get information about you, they are prohibited by law from releasing any information of any kind without a full deposition and and court order. So it pretty much prevents any kind of liens, lawsuits, judgments, uh, IRS liens, creditor claims, and so on. It's pretty phenomenal. Hmm. How much does it cost? Well, to set up one, our company does the documentation and uh, client consultation. And so it'll run about a half a percent of the property starting value. So if you got a $100,000 house, it'd be about $500 to set it up. Uh, if it's 200000 obviously about 1000 But that doesn't just include the setup. That also includes the quote-unquote escrow function. In other words, we process the directions for the distribution of funds. And, and also we have legal review and accounting review that's included in that cost. So it's pretty inexpensive. And it's it's saved uh, hundreds of people over the years from what would otherwise have been disastrous litigation problems. And the other thing it does is it precludes someone from having to evict an errant tenant buyer. If, some, if you've got a tenant buyer in the equity holding trust transfer, you don't have to go to foreclosure to kick them out. You can just kick them out as a tenant, whereas if the same person had done it by let's say, an equity share or contract for deed or wraparound mortgage or a lease option or anything else, you'd have to go to full foreclosure, which normally takes months or years and thousands of dollars to protect yourself against something that you never should have been sued for in the first place. But with our program, it's such a simple eviction. What happens when the tenant buyer defaults, if they do default, all of a sudden all bets are off. They're no longer a beneficiary in the trust. They now revert back to a straight lease tenant subject to standard eviction and unlawful detainer processes. 
So we avoid that. That saved hundreds of people, thousands of dollars. And matter of fact, I'm working on one right now. That the the woman put this uh, $700,000 property in a trust about five years ago, put in a resident beneficiary to make all the payments and handle everything. And for the last two years, this woman who is a resident beneficiary has been trying to cheat the settlor beneficiary, the, the seller of the property, been trying to cheat by trying to terminate the trust without her permission, trying to fake documents and all kinds of things. And she's failed at every single step. So now she's coming in to hand the non-resident, the person we call the non-resident beneficiary, hand her $750,000 in cash just to get, get the thing purchased. But it's been at least two years and 350 emails back and forth, all not between me, but between the seller and the buyer, trying to iron things out that would have never worked if she had done it any other way. So from my experience in real estate, I know, you know, with you being in the industry for as long as you have, anything that sounds too good to be true probably is. So now, if you were to look at it as objectively as you can, what is the downside for doing this? Well, it depends on what your objective was from the beginning. If you're doing this in lieu of something that is more convenient for you, then that would be a downside. In other words, when I acquire a property, I have the owner of the property put the property in a trust in his name. And then rather than taking title to the property, I take a beneficial interest in that trust, and I leave him with a beneficial interest and and directorship of the trust. You see, the type of trust we use is directed by the beneficiaries and not by the trustee. So I always leave that seller in there for at least a 10% beneficial interest. The downside there is that I can't do anything without his permission. In other words, I can't go out and use the, the title to bail myself out of jail. If I, <laughs> if I get tossed in the jug, I can't go use it for a bail bond because he would have to sign and he's not going to. I can't do anything with the property that could harm him without him signing. So some people will see the partnership aspect of it as a drawback. In other words, if you've got plenty of money and plenty of credit and you go out and buy a house, you don't want to have a partner in it telling you can't do something if you want to. My properties and every single one of them, I've got two partners. I've got the person who I got the property from who's the first beneficiary in the trust, and then there's me, and then there's my resident beneficiary. So all three of us have to be in complete accord if somebody's going to do something that could conceivably jeopardize the interest of another party. But the beauty of it is that everyone understands that in the beginning, and I'll typically get a power of attorney from the seller party so I don't have to bother them with minor issues like changing the voltage in the electrical system or when I want to put in a jacuzzi or whatever it might be. But I can't do anything that would require a, a contract of any, any sort with anyone without everybody being in full agreement. I couldn't put in a swimming pool, for example, without everybody saying it's a great idea, go ahead and do it. Good information. And I, I missed the three partners. I got you first as a beneficiary, the resident beneficiary, the person you're buying it from. Who's the third partner? Let's start at the top. 
I find a guy by the name of Joe Brown. He's got a house that I want. And maybe even he's over-encumbered, because I don't even care about that. But I got Joe Brown, who says, I've been having trouble selling my house, and I say, I'll take over your payments. I'll take over all of it. You can just walk away if you want to. And if you have any equity in it, Joe, I'll give you that when our transaction terminates three years from now. So, and I do it for him, but I have Joe put the property in an intervivals trust in his name. So Joe Brown Trust. Now, at that point, like I said, rather than going on title, I will just take a beneficial interest in his trust. So now as a beneficiary, I now have, because of Revenue Ruling 92105, for example, I have the right as a non-owner, but a co-beneficiary, we're not to the resident yet, I have the right to take a full income tax write-off. I have a right to whatever he gives me. He can give me future appreciation, half of the future appreciation or some portion of it, principal reduction from the mortgage loan pay down and all of that. So I end up at that point with 100% of the fee simple benefits of real estate ownership. Now, I've got dozens and dozens of properties, so I don't want to live in it. I just want to make money on it. So what I'll do then is advertise for someone, and my advertisement will say, beautiful two-bedroom, three-bath, or three-bedroom, two-bath, downtown Henderson, Nevada, $200,000 house, only 1500 a month, plus tax and insurance. No down payment, no credit qualifying. Well, I get lots of calls on that. But when I do, I say, well, listen, I got this house over in Henderson, and if you can afford the upfront money, which is probably about three payments, and if you can hold it for three years, I'll just give it to you. At the end of that time, then we'll sell it, and if there's any profit, we can just split it between us after you get your money back that you put in up front. So there's three beneficiaries now. There's a lady, and then there's the person that I put in the property to handle all of my costs and expenses and elbow grease. So there's three of us, and the contract will say at the end of that trust, the proceeds on sale will be divided among the beneficiaries with respect to whatever percentage of beneficial interest they hold in the trust. So in that particular scenario, I'm going to leave it, usually leave the seller with a 10% beneficial interest, and then I'm going to take a 40% beneficial interest, and for the guy who's going to move in and make all the payments and so forth, I give him 50%. So at the end of that agreement, when we decide what our net profit's going to be after the sale of refinance, then that's how we divide up the profit among us. And typically, the settlor beneficiary doesn't want anything, so I'll give him 10% beneficial interest to hold until the end of the trust, and then he forfeits that to me in consideration of my prompt payments and, and that sort of thing. So I'll end up in a case like that, 50-50, with the resident beneficiary. You know, the beauty of it is, when my resident beneficiary comes in, he might say to me, well, I don't have the $10,000 that you want up front. I know it's not a lot of money for a $200,000 house, but I don't have that. And I'll say, well, how much you got? He says, well, I can come up with 6000 I say, well, I'll tell you what we'll do. Give me 6000 now, and if you want, you can give me the other 4000 over the term of the agreement. We'll start off giving you a 40% interest. I'll take a 60% for myself. You got 40 and then when I get the other 4000 then we'll go to 50-50. Or I might have more money coming in than that and say, we'll go to 40-60 in your favor if you give me this or that or so on. That's how the equity holding transfer works. And like you said, it sounds too good to be true, but 
anything that is really, really good always sounds too good to be true in the beginning. Yeah, yeah, I like how you broke it down. It's really helpful and cleared a lot of things up. What's your best real estate investing advice ever? I'm kind of a philosopher as it were, so I've got a lot of advice to the people I teach. I do pretty sizable seminars and workshops and teaching the concept to other people, but the best advice I have is to forget the advice you've gotten and start developing new patterns in your life that can serve you well. If you're digging for gold and uh, realize that you're not finding any gold, if you, you just get further in the hole. And that's what a lot of people do is they say, well, I know there's going to be a prize at the end of this string somewhere. And that's not what I would, would recommend people do. I recommend people give more time to analyzing new ideas than trying to perfect old ones. So I guess if I'm going to give somebody advice, I would say, think for yourself. And when you see something that sounds too good to be true, check it out thoroughly because it might be good and true. You ready for the best ever lightning round? You betcha. All right. First, a quick word from our best ever partners. If you're looking in the Big Apple for real estate, then go speak to Nicole Beauchamp. She's a previous best ever guest. It's episode number 312. She offers bespoke brokerage services for sellers and buyers of real estate in New York City and beyond. You can email her at Nicole.Beauchamp, B-E-A-U-C-H-A-M-P, at E-V-U-S-A.com. What's the best ever book you've read? Best ever book I ever read of any kind whatsoever is going to be uh, James Dickey's Deliverance. However, in real estate, anything that Jim Rohn has ever written or the now departed Zig Ziglar. So those are the best. Help enough people get what they want and eventually you'll get everything you want. That's right. Yep. What's the best ever personal growth experience and what would you learn from it? Well, probably the real estate recession. Um, when the real estate recession hit in the late 90s, I owned, uh, I don't know, I had a, at least 4 to $5 million in, in net equity in real estate and dozens and dozens of properties. And when the thing hit, I couldn't believe this was happening, that my properties just kind of went away one at a time. I was fortunate enough to sell a lot of them in the beginning, but I wasn't smart enough at the time to see the writing on the wall or I'd have sold them all. And then the ones that I didn't sell, they just kept going down, down, down. So I guess that was the the eye-opener, you know. The one thing that I live by is that adversity is God's gift to mankind of the opportunity to get to know himself. And believe me, I did. During that period of time, we had been functioning, running around the world like multimillionaires, and then all of a sudden uh, <laughs> we, were, we were looking for a place to just get out of the rain. So, yeah, that was probably the, the most effective lesson. What's the best ever deal you've done? Well, the best deal that we've done, I got a property in the San Fernando Valley area in terms of cash, I, I suppose, that you're looking for. But I got a property in San Fernando Valley. It was worth about maybe 500000 at the time, and we were able to pick it up for 400000 And the uh, the owner carried it for me, and then I put a tenant in and was able to pull about, well, $2,200, a month positive cash flow for about three years. And then we sold the property for a million and a half. So what I had to do then was 
take the, the million dollar profit and give half of it to my tenant who'd lived in the property for all those years and taking the hundred percent care of it and also made those payments for that period of time and pay off the loan and I walk away with a half a million dollars on a property that never cost me anything. I didn't even really take any risk on it. What happens when you take over a property like that, any kind of a subject to arrangement, and you're not making a down payment, and you got somebody else making the payment and somebody else handling all of the maintenance and the repair and the upkeep. You're just sitting back counting your pesos. So I, I guess that was probably, the, I, I've said several that have come close to that, but that's probably the best one. What's the biggest mistake you've made so far in real estate? Biggest mistake. That's a good one because I've made a lot of mistakes. I think the biggest mistake was presuming that good fortune lasts in a dozen. Good fortune is given to you in bundles and bursts and so on. So if you end up getting good fortune and you think it's going to happen again or you think it's going to be consistently oncoming, that's the mistake that a lot of people make because it's not. When good fortune hits, you need to stay right where you are, put that most of that good fortune in the bank or in a good investment, and not run out and spend it all because good fortune never, ever lasts. I love getting insight from someone who has been in the industry for as long as you have and, and has the perspective. What's the best place the best ever listeners can find you? The email address would be BG for Bill Gatton, be BG at landtrust.net. The website that probably, there's there's a couple we have, landtrust.net is one website. Another one is uh, ehtransfer.com. Now, ehtransfer.com has a documentation, database, and so forth. So our, our clients come to us and they can do their own input and create their own documents and then we can do the legal review and get back to them with drafts and have them approve the drafts and so on. And like I said, the cost of our handling all the documentation and so forth is anywhere from 0.375% to 0.5% of the property starting value. Well, this has been an informative conversation. I've really enjoyed learning more about this structure. It's something that I have had people talk to me about land trust before, but not in this level of detail and with these examples, these specific examples. So much appreciated on the lesson that you taught me, as well as I'm sure a lot of the best ever listeners and how specific you are with your approach to it adds a, another level of credibility and education. So thanks so much for being on the show. Hope you have appreciate you. Thank you so much. Yes. Hope you have a best ever day, Bill. And we'll talk to you soon. You got it. Bye now. If you're looking in the big apple for real estate, then go speak to Nicole Beauchamp. She's a previous best ever guest. It's episode number 312 she offers bespoke brokerage services for sellers and buyers of real estate in New York City and beyond. You can email her at Nicole.Beauchamp, B-E-A-U-C-H-A-M-P at E-V-U-S-A dot com.